friends, this is Morgan Snyder, and welcome to the 50th Become Good Soil podcast episode. It's just wild to say that out loud, to go, I can't believe we're here years into this. I remember the first time when I turned 30 and I sat with John in his truck. We were coming back from a hunt, and I put some questions in front of him, and it began the process of sitting at the feet of older men in front of me in the journey of becoming. And that was, man, 13 years ago. And in the process, God launched a podcast. It was simply an effort to love the alumni who came out of the first Become Good Soil Intensive, which then we called the 30s Retreat. It was 12 guys. We spent four holy days together, and I wanted to keep fighting for their hearts. And so the intent was, let's create a podcast for those guys. And if there are a handful of other people along the path that want more of this gospel, that they would find us. And here we are, 50 episodes later. And so I I just felt like it was worth celebrating. And so I asked the Holy Spirit, I said, Holy Spirit, what would you have to celebrate? I, I, I confess, I am very slow to celebrate. I am very slow to seize opportunities to just pause, pause in the midst of battle, pause in the midst of not yet, pause in the midst of un finished and simply celebrate. I think in Allender's book on Sabbath, he has a brilliant teaching on this, and I would commend that to your reading, especially if you have the courage to take a genuine sabbatical, which God loves to fight for. But in it, he talks about the nature of the Sabbath is to say, I know we are still at war and there is much undone and much unfinished and much yet to come, much unresolved. And even still, Sabbath is a proclamation of what has been done, a proclamation of what God has done and what he has accomplished and how we have responded to him and to celebrate what is true, celebrate what has manifested in our lives. And so, In that spirit, I felt like God was saying, in order to celebrate the 50th, I wanted it to be about you, the listeners. I wanted to try to model and manifest some way of letting you be center stage, wherever you are in Australia, in England, in Mississippi, on the West Coast or East Coast of the US, whether you're out on a walk, listening, on earphones, you're in a commute, you're in a wonderful, quiet, brief moment in your own home listening to this, and you have tracked with this message, and you are a part of a tribe. I want it to be about you. And I so often find myself sitting with good men and getting into robust dialogue with questions and response on all sorts of topics related to the gospel and the gospel expressed in this journey of becoming the kind of man in whom God can entrust his kingdom. And I find myself going, oh, I wish I could record this. I wish someone would have hit record because I know many good men out there that would deeply benefit from this conversation. And so in that spirit, I wanted to find some first step as a, as a V1 to host a conversation. And early in these years, I heard from Dallas that he never calls it a Q&A, a question and answer. He calls it a question and response. And I really appreciate that because I am simply not an expert on these matters. I am a fellow pilgrim. I'm a fellow man that's unfinished and in process, that has some victories and has many defeats. I have some successes and many failures. I am on the path of becoming alongside of you, but in humility and in strength, I wanna offer responses from my view, from my miles and from my seat in this journey as a way of serving you 
and letting you borrow from my risking as I borrow from yours. And so this is a question and response and just a funny backstory. So I put together a Google survey, Google form, I think it's called, to try to gather these questions. And I'm not much of an IT person. I ran it by JD who helped me. And so I put it out there and I put a little tag in the 49th Become Good Soil podcast and then in a little post. And over a couple days, no questions came in. And I was expecting a handful, hoping for several. I thought a dozen great questions would would just be right on the money. And I got none. And it was just fascinating. First of all, to just see what comes up in my heart where I went, wow, okay, okay, maybe, maybe we're done. Maybe there aren't people listening and there aren't people tracking. And then after about three days, I thought, this is peculiar. I mean, really? No questions? And so... I decided to enter a question myself is just a sort of test question. And I put it in there and I got no response. And so I realized, okay, these must be hiding somewhere. So I log into Google Forms and I get there and there are 46 brilliant questions. And I just start cracking up going, God, it's so like you. It is so like you to constantly keep us on our frontier to constantly be playful with us, to constantly expose the places um, that we still have not rooted our validation fully in, in him. And so it was wonderfully exposing. And then it was like a birthday party to get all the great questions from you. And two days later, I click on it again. It went from 46 to 58. This morning I went on again to look at it and there were another dozen questions. And so they just keep coming in and every question is weighty and beautiful and worthy of our time and care. And so thank you for risking. Thank you for responding. Thank you for entering into the first steps in a dialogue. And this first question and response episode for the 50th my heart and hope is to get to a handful of questions. But as the questions have come in, I realize, well, boy, there's a lot of gold here. And perhaps it will become its own mini series that sprinkled throughout the Become Good Soil podcast. There will be various episodes that we can pause. Maybe, I don't know, every other, every five, every 10, who knows, wherever God leads. And and host some more questions. So if you've entered a question, I will do what I can in my power to get to it. It may come in in a response in one of these episodes. It may come in the form of something that fuels a future podcast or blog. So just know they've all been received and handled with respect and prayerful consideration. And I was just wondering this morning, perhaps if we get to 100 episodes and Jesus hasn't come back, and yet restored all things, then maybe the hundredth would be face-to-face and gather a handful of you around a circle and um, have a whiskey and laugh and cry and wonder, and we'll record it and share it with the rest of the tribe. So remind me of that idea if we ever get close to a hundred, and I pray that that would be so. But in the meantime, God, we give this all to you, and I do celebrate. I confess my hesitancy to celebrate and the posture of my soul that keeps me leaning into the not yet, the unfinished, probably more than you intend. And I want to pause and name this as a moment of celebration, that we would be quick to celebrate the good the triumph of your life, the reality that you are the initiator and we are the responders and you are at work. You are on the move. You are pursuing. You are initiating. You are strengthening. You are inviting. You are always making a way where it feels like there is no way. You are faithful You say in 2 Timothy, when we lack faith in you, you remain faithful because that's who you are. In that same passage, it comes to mind 
Father, that you say, if we deny you, you will deny us. And it's holy ground to think that you bestow upon us as your sons the dignity of causality, the dignity of choice, that you honor our denying you and you honor our accepting you. You honor our prayer to avoid you and you honor our posture to say, I want more of me to belong to more of you. So God, we proclaim your faithfulness over your provision in Become Good Soil, in this podcast and these blogs and teachings and intensive retreats and all the manifestations that you've had to fight for the hearts of men who long for more initiation. And I ask that your spirit would fill this time, that your spirit would fill the questions, that would fill the responses, that your spirit would filter, that your spirit would infuse with your promise, with your power, with your portion, with your strength, with your insights, with your clarity, with your love. Come and fill this time. Guide us by your Spirit. In the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. So friends, as I round a corner and get to engaging some of the questions, just by way of uh, observation, it's really interesting. The themes of the questions, they're, they're all across the board. But what's fascinating is the single category that was asked about the most is this idea of taking the lowest seat at the table. It's an idea from Francis Schaeffer in the piece that he wrote called The Lord's Work in the Lord's Way. And in it, if you recall from the teaching, Jesus says we do his work um, the way in which he invites us to do the work. And it's by not assuming the high seat at the table, but rather taking the lowest seat at the table until God makes it impossible to do anything but be raised up. And the posture of a decade of becoming is one that is very deeply rooted in the idea of choosing willfully intentionally with deep, sincere motives to take and assume the lowest seat at the table. It's really fascinating. These questions are limited because I don't get to hear your story. And some of the names are very familiar. It was like visiting old friends. And then some of the names are people I've never met before. And so I unfortunately have to make a few assumptions of of what's behind the question. But I think what I want to name in that first question. It it wasn't the first question, but it was the question asked the most about. My observation is that there are two categories of men in general that are asking about that question of taking the lowest seat. And one group of men are asking the question saying, oh man, when is my time up? When can I say I've done the work of taking the lowest seat and now it's time to lead? Now it's time to rise. Now it's time to be out in front. Now it's time to pursue the kingdom that God is entrusting to my care. And there's this this energy behind it of when, when when am I ready? When is it time? And there's another population of guys, and this is much fewer. This, this is very few. This is the minority of men, I sense, with this question out there. And they are saying, I am being asked. I am being beckoned. I am being invited into what feels like a higher seat at the table. And I have pause. I have ambivalence. I have hesitation. And I'm not sure if this is what I need to do. 
So friends, let me speak a response to um, very different populations of guys out there on this question because it's so central to the masculine journey. And what I want to say is if you're a guy out there saying, when is my time up? When do I get to stop taking the lowest seat at the table? When do I get to graduate? When is enough enough? When am I ready? And if that's you, what I want to say is you're not ready. It's not time. There is not a shift. The answer is not yet. The reason why I say that is transitioning to the second group. The posture of the lowest seat at the table is one that I want to suggest never goes away. One of my um, close allies and a man who's tracked deeply in this message said it this way, that he is being called into deeper leadership and more authority and more kingdom influence and expansion. And he is absolutely passionate about the belief that the invitation to lead is an invitation to assume an even lower seat at the table. It's not a higher seat at the table. It's a lower seat at the table. Now, please understand, we have to separate externals from internals. I'm not responding to questions of title, questions of outward expressions on a human realm, in family, in money, in ministry, in companies, in in roles. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the level of the heart I'm talking about motives expressed. And we see it in Jesus's life. If you think about it, at the pinnacle of his years with his disciples, at the apex of his ministry and his opportunity to have the greatest influence, he chose to be with the few. He chose to draw away. Um, I love in the translation the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, uh, Peterson's translation, he said, for his fellow climbers, when the crowd got too big, he went up to a high mountain and those who wanted to climb, those who were apprenticed to Jesus, in other words, those who were consenting for him to be the central teacher, they climbed with him to get to a quiet place. Jesus got smaller in an outward way as his numbered days came to a close. And in the upper room, the brilliance of the intimacy and the holiness is this is Jesus's moment to be triumphant and to declare authority. And the manner in which he does that is to model the unthinkable. In their culture expressed, what he did was take the absolute lowest seat being made available to him. Jesus said, I came from my father and I will return to my father. And from that reality and in that story as context, I choose to wash your feet. And please understand that it's hard to access the reality of the humiliation of that act in our culture. But It'd be just the most humiliating act you can think of to willfully, intentionally take upon, to wash the dirty feet of his friends, to do the servant's work when he was the, quote, leader. It's how he led, as Bill Johnson says, to serve with the heart of a king and lead with the heart of a servant, that Jesus assumed the lowest seat at the table, that his ascension to leadership is to model taking an even lower seat. What's fascinating, there's a passage on this that you could you could really spend time meditating on and contemplating if you really want to wrestle and dive deeper into this category. But in Philippians, when Paul is laying out to the church of Philippi what Christ is like and what the invitation of the gospel looks like, he says in chapter 2, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any fellowship with his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. In other words, if you have tasted 
anything of the life of God through my life, Paul says. If you have gotten a scent of a good and a true and a beautiful, if you have touched the power and the reality of restoration and redemption, he said, then make my joy complete. Let's share in the joy that is available. He said, by being like-minded and having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. So he's getting us ready to say, be like Christ. Have the same love as God. Have the same mind as God. Be one with God in spirit, in intention, in purpose, in motive. And then he expresses what, what, what does he mean by that? He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, in harnessed strength, in strength under reign. Consider others better than yourself. Just think about that. He's saying this is the path of masculine initiation is to consider others above yourself. Each of you should not look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. It doesn't say exclusively to the interests of others, but also to the interests of others. So he's saying if you are to walk in strength, in maturation, with a growth mindset, you should look to the interests of others. And then he finally says, this is kind of the pinnacle of it, the apex. He says, your attitude should be the same in its nature as the attitude of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to explain, reminding us, friends, this is Christ's inner life. This is his disposition. This is the way he thinks when he thinks about the nature of things. It says, Jesus, who had the nature of God, he was God incarnate, God in his fullness, in all of his glory. Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, not something to be attained or sought after, but he made himself nothing. He emptied himself, taking the nature of a servant, right? He took the lowest seat at the table, being made in human likeness. Simply the, the humility for God to take on human form. And as it says in the scriptures, to face every temptation that man has ever encountered. I find so much solidarity in knowing that Jesus suffered under the very same suffering that I have ever encountered, that he faced every temptation and yet was without sin, the scripture says. So taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, which is so central in the masculine journey, even death on a cross. He willfully consented to taking upon death so that resurrection could flow through him. And therefore, right here is the transition in the passage. We can't get to the resurrection and the ascension without first fully embracing the death. It was therefore that God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of his Father. Now, friends, this is not just pithy, inspirational statements. This is a reality that will one day manifest that at one point in our story, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord, that he is and will be exalted to the highest place and given a name above every other name. And if you track with this teaching, you know the power of a name, of a white stone with its luminosity and its indestructibility. And so friends, the path of exaltation is one of deep humiliation that passes through a death and finds a greater life. 
the path of Jesus is one of taking an increasing lower seat at the table. It's a posture of heart, taking on the same attitude, the same likeness, the same purpose, the same heart as Jesus. And so if you are a man that wants more, I would say bring that desire and that frustration and that ache and that anger and that discouragement to your father and ask him about it. Ask him what he's up to. Ask him what the next piece is for you. But what I want to suggest is as we assume the lower seat at the table and let it be God's business to raise us up, what will happen in the soul, as I'm finding with some some peers that's beautiful to watch these kings being raised up, is they have an increasing ambivalence to kingship. They have an increasing pause. They have a holy reluctance is what I might call it because they are becoming the kind of men who understand that kingship is mostly about suffering and sacrifice, that kingship is mostly a context to test and mature our love being spent and spilled on behalf of others to fight for their dignity, their greatness, their restoration, their life in God, and to usher in the coming of the kingdom. And it's only through the process of kingship, consented, heart-centered kingship, that we become fathers, that we become fathers and mothers, which are the most lacking commodity in the community of the saints, in our age, and in our land. It is what's most deeply and desperately lacking, I believe, our fathers and mothers. That is to say, elders at the gates, the people with gray hair that have passed through their initiation, that have matured into wholeness and holiness, that are in the twilight of their life in this world. But when you look in their eyes, there's light and there's life and there's something in their soul that breathes the reality that the best is yet to come. That's what I experience in Bart Hansen by way of example. He has every reason to be discouraged. And he is the most joyful man I know. As he's maturing in his decades, much of his life is behind him. And yet when you live with him, what you see is he believes his best is yet to come. He's a man who's passed through his initiation and he's become an elder at the gate. And that's what we need and it's kingship that does it. And I think just a personal story by way of example, uh, this lowest seat at the table has been my heartbeat and it's been my posture and my uh, consent for the better part of two decades, but with fierce intentionality over the last 13 years. And about two years ago, I was spending time with God and I was worn out from the battle and from just that feeling of being a public figure and the loneliness of being known in pieces by many, but not known fully by most. And I'd done 20 years of battle for the hearts of people and I was sitting with God And I sense the father saying, what do you want, son? And I said, father, I've done a tour of duty. I now understand why military retirement in America is 20 years. It feels like solid work and something to be proud of. And I could just feel that whiff of I've done I've done my work. I've invested my blood and sweat and tears. And I would love to choose obscurity. I would love if I had the uh, choice to not be in the public light, to just be a guy, be a guy that gets to take my kids to school and take my wife out on a date and work out at the gym and cut firewood, 
spent a lot of time in solitude were I to write my own story. I would say, um, done my tour of duty, and I would like to spend my life with more of me being offered to fewer people, to go deeper with fewer, and I could feel the pain in it, and, and just some of the fatigue, and some of the unmet dreams, you know, that I, I have a lot of dreams unfulfilled yet, and also to acknowledge the pain of what the mission has cost in my marriage and my kids in ways. And yeah, it's brought a lot of life to my wife and kids and my friendships, but also cost. And I could just sense the father say, thank you, son. I know. I know. I know. And as I reached deeper, where my heart went was, and I'm reluctant about being a king. I see in my early years, when I was invited to take the lowest seat at the table, I fought that thing. Oh my goodness, it felt like getting like a detention or something or being benched at the time. That's emotionally what it felt like. And then as I consented to that process over time, what I came to realize was that kingship is deeply costly and it's about love. It's about loving others. And it's about living from wholeheartedness in such overflow that I can live without requirement on outcomes, without looking for success as the benchmark, without requiring change in other people to have my happiness. It's great cost. It's great sacrifice. And frankly, I don't know if I want it, and I don't know if I'm up to the task. And it was right there that I sensed the father say, and that's why I'm making you a king. And it caught me off guard because it's not like I'm not already a king. You know, we, we, we all have a kingdom. We rule over our bodies. We rule over our land, our property, our relationships, our families. But he was saying, this is a season of expansion. And even specifically, after that conversation piece, I said, God, what is this season? And he says, it's a building season. And I, I could have wept if I wasn't, I just wasn't prepared for it. I thought he was going to give me respite. But what he said was, that's why I'm choosing you, because you don't want it. And so brothers, I just want to say that out loud that um, I, I'm taking some big risks to be vulnerable with you for the sake of love, that so much of it is motive. So much of it comes down to motive. And so the reason why I want to share that is it's only after that process that we can get to the externals. And so everything I just shared has no bearing on whether or not you lead that company whether or not you assume a role on a board of directors or as an elder or you take on being a senior pastor or an executive or you expand your influence or you use leverage to reach more people for the sake of love. It may be that God is expanding your territory, but it's all about posture and motive. And so that doesn't answer what you should do or not do about that leadership role that looks like a higher seat. That's a consequence. That's an outflow. That's a result of taking the lower seat. But the brilliance of it is in your motive to agree with leadership being an invitation to an even lower seat will prepare your heart to become the kind of person that God can entrust more of his kingdom. One of the most brilliant stories in leadership I ever heard was a story between uh, Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev. And this was boy, when we were kids, but this was at the height of the Cold War. Remember Star Wars and the threat of nuclear catastrophe. 
and everything and everyone in culture was just seized on what is the future of the relationship between Russia and America. And we had Ronald Reagan as our president and his biography or autobiography in American Life is a brilliant read. And I believe I, I found this story in there and I'll paraphrase it and butcher it. It's been quite a while that I read it. But in those days, Reagan went to Russia to meet with Gorbachev for the first time. Gorbachev spoke English, but very broken English. And these were back in the days, there was no internet, there were no cell phones. Information flowed rather slowly and in pieces and parts with very large gaps. There was incredible tension between these two nations. But at the end of the day, these nations were being represented by a king one being Gorbachev, one being Reagan. And Reagan was a rancher. Reagan was, um, he had a background as an actor, but he he cut his teeth in uh, working for a large corporation where he went as a spokesperson from corporation, from uh, site to site, and he would meet with the people. And these are the workers, the, the workers on the line of a factory and he would hear their stories and he would get to know their pains and their struggles. He was a, a working class man that assumed the role of president of the United States. And true model, I believe, of what the role was intended to be a man who comes out of his profession or trade or, or world for a time, for a season, to serve the larger body on behalf of love. And so what happened in that interaction between Gorbachev and Reagan. They had secret service and they had translators and they both had a massive entourage. And Reagan said to Gorbachev, is there a place where we could make a campfire? And through the translators, they said, yeah, yeah, we could do that. And there was a lake nearby. And so Ronald Reagan asked Mikhail Gorbachev if he could take a walk. And they went down to the lake and they walked away from the entourage, away from the interpreters, away from all of the security. And guys, people were freaking out. I mean, civilization hinged in that moment, potentially, on this relationship. And the two of them sat down and Reagan made a campfire. And it was just two men, equals, fathers, sons, and men both knowing much was entrusted to their care. And they made a campfire and they talked and they talked about their families and they talked about struggles. They talked man to man and heart to heart. And the fruit of it was that a friendship forged in that time. And Reagan said, I would love to have you at my ranch. I'd love for you to come to America and I would love for you to meet my family. And Gorbachev said in response, only if you'd be willing to come meet my family, I would love to invite you into my home. And it was that campfire that brokered in some ways the rescue of earth from the potential catastrophic event of a nuclear war reason why I share that story is Gorbachev and Reagan um, assumed very high levels of kingship in this world. And you could see it as a high seat at the table, that there was much and many entrusted to their care. But in that moment, their posture was the lowest seat. Their posture was the attitude of Christ, of how can I serve how can I put someone's interests in front of my own? And so friends, wherever you are, I've taken quite a bit of time to elaborate on this question, but it's a passion and it's central to the gospel of initiation and it's central to becoming the kind of king in whom God can entrust his kingdom. Where is God inviting you to take an even lower one? So friends, in general, I think I'll just move through the list of questions, generally in the order in which they came, entrusting God's timing and his portion and all of this. But the second question I want to turn to was probably the second most asked about question. It was very intriguing. Um, it had to do with initiation of daughters. And 
I'm so grateful I have a, a daughter. And yes, of course, I talk a lot about the initiation of sons. And I've talked relatively um, less about initiation of daughters. And here is the primary reason um, I've done that is my son came first. He's the oldest. Uh, my son's 14 and my daughter's 11. And one of the core values and kind of tenets of this gospel is to offer out of what we've lived. You see, in an information age, and especially as a curious student, we can very dangerously and destructively know more than we've lived. We can regurgitate through gifting information, but the real power and anointing of the kingdom of God flows through the integrity of offering out of what we've lived, not just what we know, not just theory, not what we've just eaten and regurgitated out from someone else, but from our true experience. And so I have been very slow to share anything on initiation, even of sons, simply because my posture is letting it flow out of what I live so that it can have power and anointing. And the other piece is I am not willing for my kids to be guinea pigs. They are my priority. And their initiation of my son and my daughter is far more important to me than any ministry that flows out of the fruit of their initiation. So what I mean by that is when I go after their hearts and when I'm wrestling with my own curiosity regarding their initiation and their maturation, it's not from the next podcast. It's not for the next blog. The reason why I'm doing it is because they matter because it's the central energy of my life. First, my relationship with God, and then fighting for my marriage, and then fighting for the hearts of my son and my daughter. It's only from the overflow of that that I believe I can have genuine ministry and impact of apprenticeship with other fathers and mothers. And so that's really the reason why I haven't spoke on it yet is we're in the throes of it. I'm figuring it out as I go. I'm learning a lot, asking a lot of questions, trying things on and experimenting with it. So I've been slower to offer that, but absolutely, there is a lot more coming. I'm writing on initiation right now, kind of quietly, and that will all one day produce fruit, I hope, for the lives of many. But in the here and now, yes, absolutely. It's as significant, it's as important, it's as central as initiation of boys. And so I guess by way of maybe a, a teaser, I would offer a few things. And just in humility, what I have learned in the initiation of a daughter is that it's very similar and very different. And I think that's the guiding principle. It's very similar and it's very different. It's very similar in that we are all created in the image of God and set on a path of maturation where we have to deal with the construct of the fall and the false self that's formed out of that and an identity that's rooted since the fall in shame and fear. And we have to come to encounter a living God. And I believe our children can primarily do that through our modeling and our making access directly for them through their process of initiation. It's very similar in that there are these central questions, and I've come to name them as, who is God? What is he really like? What's his nature? What is the nature of reality? In other words, what's the story in which we're living? Who am I? What is my identity? And what is my frontier? Where, where is the edge of the initiation? And where is God calling me into deeper risk and deeper maturity? And I believe those questions are universal that have very particular expressions through gender, but they are universal. And I believe that they're the same questions that a young soul is asking and the same questions um, I'm asking in this decade of my life. 
And so there are the similarities. And then there's specificity. A woman is not a man, and a man is not a woman. A boy is not a girl, and a girl is not a boy. And so it is very important to think of the initiation of a daughter in the terms of a woman's heart. And I think in humility, what I've learned to celebrate and acknowledge and confess in humility is I'm not a woman and I don't know what I don't know. And so I have to lean into other women and particularly into my wife for the initiation of my daughter in knowing what to go after and how to shape that and what's on time and what are the stages and what are the milestones in general for a woman's development in contrast to a man's development and what are the questions uniquely that she's asking as a woman. And so those are some of the things I'm wrestling with. And so what I would say is to become a student of her heart, both as female as a girl turning into a woman, what does she love and how is she wired and what does she dream about and what does she need? And then in specificity to her own story, what is the unique way, not only as a girl, but as her, as Abigail in my case, um, what, what is uniquely the path that God is 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 shepherding her heart into, and how can I partner with him in his initiation of my daughter? As we've taught, and Stacy's taught about this, and John, and I've taught about the idea that dad does bestow identity, but mom bestows self-worth, and those are very different things. What I've come to learn in this journey is there is something of God's heart as mother that's absolutely central to the human experience. And for my daughter, as a girl becoming woman, one of the most heroic acts I believe that I could ever do is to fight for the cultivation of mother in her life. So one of those things is to do what I can to spend my strength to guard and protect the nurturing and nourishing of what happens through my wife and what happens through other women. And so there have been times, there was a season where, based on where we were living for a time where I was able to fight for cultivating time with Abigail with a grandmother figure who was was teaching her how to quilt. And it wasn't about quilting. It was about the substance that moves from the feminine heart of an elder to a child. And particularly, all the research shows that the first three years of human development are the most formative. There's no shame in this, and God redeems everything if your kids are older than three. And yet, what I want to say I guess one of the biggest uh, victories I, I think I'll look back on over my life is fighting for the cultivation of intimacy between my wife and my daughter in the first three years of her life. And it required financial sacrifice. It required much energy spend. It required shifting priorities to see that my wife was able to give the very best intimacy and attachment and mothering to my daughter in those years. And now what's really important, and I've said this before initiation, and I'll say it again, but we initiate our children into the person that we have become. And so what you will find in initiation of our daughters and our sons, so often it's our fear and our reservations that bring us to this question of how the heck do I do this? What the heck do I do? The best response I can give is that you will initiate your children into the person you've become. And therefore, your initiation, your pursuit of wholeheartedness is the very most important thing that you can do for the initiation of your children. And it's from that initiation, from that path and pursuit of wholeheartedness and holiness that you will be equipped and you will know what to do and when to do it 
for the initiation of your sons and daughters. And so what I would say is, how is your becoming? How is your becoming? And where are you with that? But having said that, with daughters particularly, I think one other thing I would name is delight, delight, delight. Now, there are similarities, right? There's a blog, if you haven't read it, uh, Celebration of Boyhood, I wrote on my son's initiation. And that so often in those early years for a boy, it's delight, right? It's you are loved, you are loved. But even more so for a girl. I, I wanted to mark this with Abigail. And, and so here's putting some threads together. One is Sherry. Educate me, teach me, what does a girl's heart need from dad? And I wanted to mark kind of a celebration of delight for her as she was beginning to go through this transition from girl to young woman in just little bits. I wanted to be out in front of it. Instead of reactive, I wanted to be proactive. And I knew that it was similar and I knew it was different. And so I went to Sherry and we talked through it. And I said, what would you have loved? What a great question to ask your wife regarding your daughter to say, when you were a little girl at five, what would you have loved to receive from dad? When you were a girl at 10, what would you have loved to receive? When you were a girl at 14, what would you have loved to receive from dad? And to not make assumptions that you know, because it's not a script. As students of their heart, it's unique to every girl. And giving yourself permission to not have to put it in a formula, but actually be curious about God's initiation of your daughter and responding to what he's doing as a student of her heart. And so I went to Sherry and we talked about a ring as a symbol. And I said, Sherry, what what does it symbol? Because I knew there's a culture of kind of promise rings. And it's, it's, it's to essentially to avoid promiscuity, right? To say your sexuality is a treasure and you want to protect that and hopefully save that for your husband. And it could be good in its intent in some ways, but often it can be about the externals. Often it can be about behavior and performance Often it can come to a girl's heart in the posture of success or failure. What happens if she gets pregnant with her promise ring on her finger? It's those kind of questions that led me to, Sherry, I want to put a ring on my daughter's finger, and I want it to be some symbol of the manifest presence of the Father heart of God fighting for her. And what I'm offering to her in love until she has another ring on her finger from her husband, God willing, and I can pass some of the care God intends as the masculine care of her heart to the um, care of her future husband. And I said, Sherry, what does that ring symbolize? What would we do? It was really fascinating. Sherry gave me a beautiful course correction in this. And she said that a ring bestowed on a daughter and what she would have loved was not to communicate some promise that Abigail, my daughter, has to me, but rather it's, it's to give her a ring that communicates my promise to her. And I said, Sherry, what is it that I am promising? Like, what is it that the little girl's heart wants from dad? And she prayed. And what she came back to me was these words. It was something like, communicating to my daughter's heart that I choose to never, ever revoke my delight in you. In other words, there's nothing you can do or say. There's no action you can take that will cause me to revoke my delight, my love, my affection. It's the same from the prayer that I was led to pray at the beginning of this episode. Even when we lack faith, God is faithful to us because he cannot compromise who he is. It was something of the Father's heart to say, you have my delight and I will not withdraw from you no matter what. It really takes me back to Craig 
who has crossed over with cancer, but had two young daughters when I came into fellowship with him 20 years ago. And I remember him telling stories of all the ways he blew it up with his daughters. And and it was just beautiful, and he was very good at self-deprecating. And yet, one thing he did right, and he, he, he was he was bold in sharing these stories as he offered them affection. He celebrated who they were and he did not withdraw his delight from them. And these girls were beautiful. And one was a, a pro volleyball player and they grew up on the beaches of Southern California. And what was so amazing is that they simply didn't have a need to take their question of, am I loved? Do you delight in me? To uninitiated boys in their world, you know, uh, young men who are just boys um, in young men's bodies that were looking to take rather than give. It just was not attractive to them. And obviously, we can't guarantee how our kids will turn up. Yes, um, there are ways to guide them in love. But as one mentor said, we really don't even know how we did as parents until maybe beginning to ask that question when our children are 40, just maybe. But until then, we roll the dice and we choose to love, to bring who we are into every situation. But Craig offered delight. Craig offered physical touch, appropriate physical intimacy. He offered time. He hosted Grammy parties and would sit for the Grammys. And he would make tons of food. He would waste tons of money and all the high school girls would pile in with him and they would talk about the dresses and rant and criticize and laugh. And the girls all wanted to be with their friend's dad because they knew they had his delight. And what's fascinating is the number one indicator of sexual promiscuity among teenage girls is the presence or absence of a loving father. It's the strongest correlation of the time and affection and presence of a loving father. And so how do you communicate to the girl, you have my delight, you have my delight. There will be a lot more on initiation of daughters, but while we have this moment, I want to say very similar and very different. How do you offer your delight and communicate it in a way that it is irrevocable? How does she come to know that in her soul and trust that that's the base from which she can live and launch? There's a lot more to say on this. I would recommend that you read the blog, She Has My Delight, and it'd be a great place to start. And I'll have a lot more coming on initiation of daughters um, in the years to come. But first, it's my joy to live it myself and let my daughter and my wife be central in my heart. Brothers, I am just laughing inside, looking at pages and pages of awesome questions and realizing I just got through responding to two questions. So needless to say, it will take more episodes. But what I am curious about is what I what I thought would be a one podcast, 50 of celebration of question response. I have a hunch will flow into many, many more. Hopefully an ongoing dialogue where I continue to slowly and steadily uh, work and walk through these questions. And so we'll let that be the first, may I call it volume one, in question and response on Become Good Soil. And I'll have to hold the other questions until later. But in the meantime, if you listen to this and it provokes in you a longing for some dialogue on other questions you have on podcasts and blogs and topics that I've touched on, I'd love for you to keep submitting those questions becomegoodsoil.com forward slash question. And you can find that form there. But in the meantime, to all of my friends out there, 
both the men and young men that long to become the kind of men in whom God can trust more and more of his kingdom. And then to you brave women, I know that there's a lot of female listeners and I commend you. You are brave and you are rare and you are daring. And just know, I can say to you secretly, this is for you as well, but I unapologetically speak to the heart of a man because I I don't want to have to apologize for the life of a man who wants to become wholehearted. And so it helps me in dignity and respect and focus to speak as a man to men. But there is so much of this that is relevant to a woman's heart and so much of this that I know you women out there courageously engage in so that you can love the men in your world, so that you can love your sons. And I commend you for it. I'm proud of you. I cheer you on and champion you. And to all the friends out there near and afar, thank you for sharing 50 episodes. Thank you for sharing all these years. I'm very moved to tears at your courage. And I say, let's keep going.